I thought a lot of the public messaging about it was essentially about that money fixing potholes. I actually think the 1% sales tax money could be the most transformational spending. Like it could put St. Paul on the map globally. If you're in a painted lane, you still feel like you could die any second. You the, the entire time you're pulling your kid on the trailer, you're biking by yourself, you're biking without a helmet, you could just die. But when you reconstruct a road, you're baking that lasagna from scratch. And you can move where the curb is so that like normal people will now choose to bike and walk. Anyone who saw that vote as anything but the biggest bike ped opportunity in the state's history was missing the story. Like it it could be unbelievably transformational. This is a real, real, real thing. Real, 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 real thing. None of you have the balls to stop. Stop this. We're in the wedge neighborhood right now. 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 I, I contributed to a cookbook. We did a cooking segment. So I think the most recent, no, two episodes ago, we did a cooking segment on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was flipping through the cookbook, very impressed with myself that I got a recipe into this cookbook. And on the back cover, they misspelled my name, uh, John, without the H. Uh, we were just, uh, this is the Wedge Live podcast. My guest is Matt Provratsky with two R's. And we were discussing how people often drop the second R in Pravratsky and just make it Pravatsky. And uh, I guess that's the more common way. Welcome to the podcast, Matt Pravratsky. Happy to join, John. I mean, I, anytime St. Paul can be a focus of this show, I'm always happy to bring some, (laughs) some, some East side vibes for you all. I used to pay a little bit of attention to St. Paul, but things have gotten so uh, hectic and stressful in Minneapolis. I just, I don't look over there anymore. And so I have no idea what's going on. I've put right. very little preparation into this episode, which might be good. I feel like when you're totally ignorant on a topic, maybe you ask better questions. Maybe yeah. we'll see. Well, well, and I, in all fairness, I, I know almost nothing about Minneapolis city politics oh. on the flip side. So I'm not, I'm not judging anyone who doesn't know about St. Paul. Cause I do the same thing. You know, I keep myself sane by focusing on the stuff I care most about. And then, you know, I mostly learn about Minneapolis and the paper by following folks like you. So it's like, that's just, that's a consumption topic for me, but it's not like a, you know, I don't actively work any of it. So I'm the same on the flip side. Well, that's a shame because I was going to ask you to do the comparative thing. We're like, what, what is the deal? What is the difference between these two places? Maybe combined, we can come up with something. I don't know. I can, I definitely know enough that all anyone ever tries to do to me is compare the two cities, like reporters. It's a, it's a thing reporters always do when I try and get them to cover St. Paul more. They're like, oh, well, it's so much more this than Minneapolis. Minneapolis is so much more that. And I almost always find it to be really surface level and sort of wrong. You know, like the comparison. What, what is I the think, conventional wisdom? What are reporters, what conventional wisdom do reporters bring to you? They're really like, that's stupid. That's just uh, surface level stuff. Yeah, the comparison everyone always makes, anyone on the street, any reporter, is just that St. Paul is quieter, um, sleepier, uh, less dramatic. Um, And even when you had, I think, you know, Zach on here talking about the housing improvements in St. Paul, that's sort of what Zach mentioned, too. You know, St. Paul is just a more, a less dramatic political landscape. And I get why it would seem that way from the outside, but it's, the truth is, it's not really... um, it's not accurate how the political fights happen. It just changes the way people see it from the outside. Um, so especially when a reporter says that, I say like, it's actually really, really spicy and there's plenty of stuff going on. And I would love to help you figure out how to source this stuff and, and find people internally at City Hall to tell these stories um, because reporters and media are the ones who should be able to help, you know, broaden that perspective about how City Hall works and stuff. So Usually people just make that general assumption of like Minneapolis is exciting and dramatic and crazier and St. Paul is low key and boring and um, calm and like there's nuggets of truth to pieces of that, but it's certainly not true of having to have these political fights. As someone who's had to have these political fights, I can tell you nothing felt low key (laughs) about any of them. Right. 
You know that concept in science where uh, if you observe something, the act of observing uh, changes it? Maybe St. Paul, because no one is observing, yeah, uh, it has changed. I don't know. Oh, I do think that's true, because I think up until a few years ago, one of my longest running gripes was that even activists that lived in St. Paul spent their energy and activism in <laughs> Minneapolis. Um, and I, yeah. I, for the longest time, complained um, that we were like super under... Um, understaffed for a lack of a better word like not enough orgs not enough people not enough activists like making their voices heard and that's really fully changed now but that's only changed from the time i got really into saint paul politics until now and that's only you know the last decade or so and really the last few years is when it's changed but it's true it's like if you're not around it is going to seem more low-key because you're not seeing it happen and so you're you're removing that gravity so that's for sure true let's talk about who you are matt who are you? You worked at St. Paul City Hall. You worked for a council member, Mitra Jalali. Anything else we should know about you so that listeners take you seriously? Why should we take your opinion seriously? <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I have a background in um, policy and communications. I started out as a news uh, news director at a radio station and then worked in video production and marketing uh, where I wrote and produced videos for like a home party company because i had to pay my student loans so your aunts probably are big fans of tastefully simple and making two ingredient foods i produced all the cooking videos and product segments for them when i was 23. Mm -hmm. uh, then i got my first sort of political job working at the state capitol in the last trifecta so 2013 2014 i worked for the dfl the democrats in the house on the media team i had 15 lawmakers i did all their policy communication type stuff so anything they need written, produced, all that stuff. Um, and uh, then because I moved to St. Paul, I just sort of learned how St. Paul works and I had no idea how it worked. And I basically started just showing up to local meetings because I was, I had a decent amount of free time, but I was also just a nerd and really interested in zoning and land use and transportation and um, all that kind of stuff. And so to be honest, from like 2013 to 2017, um, mostly I was doing a, basically a version of what you do. I was sort of like a fake, I was a faker version of it. I was like a fake reporter, live tweeting meetings, um, and got a decent amount of like Twitter following from that. Just basically it would be Fred Mello from the Pioneer Press, Jane McClure from the Villager, Peter Callahan from InPost, and then me as like the fake fourth local reporter in the city. Um, and I ended up getting really frustrated by the end of that time because really easy stuff in St. Paul felt hard, like bike, like a single bike lane, like not an off street trail, not even removing parking, just adding a painted stripe sometimes felt really, really hard. And so I actually transferred like all my energy I had spent on being like a fake reporter that for like 10 to 20 hours a week where I was just trying to elevate good stuff, activate for good stuff. Um, and I ended up spending all that time on campaigns. So from 2017 on, um, I professionally have been a government affairs person. So I worked for Fresh Energy doing clean energy policy. Now I work for a solar company doing government affairs. But on my free time, basically since 2017, I've spent anywhere from 20-ish hours a week doing like free policy and communications work for campaigns I cared about. So for Melvin Carter in 2017, built his entire policy platform. Um, Trista Matas Castillo, who's now the Ramsey County Board, um, built hers, built Mitra's in 2018, um, helped Athena Hollins do it, who's now the House Whip. Um, and all these people are my personal reps. That's why I did it. So Trista is my county rep. Athena was my house rep. Then Lee Finke, um, redistricting happened. I helped Lee Finke do the same, helped Claire Verbaten, Aromo a little bit um, as well. Um, so it's just that's essentially been my my work and then for that three-year stint i was mitra jalali's legislative aide at city hall um so yeah if people can hear banging and wrestling and booms and bangs people are on my roof uh my building's roof can you hear that matt can you mm -hmm. hear the booms a little bit a little bit okay that's what that is if people are wondering i don't know if i can clean that up in editing uh, but so we are kindred spirits. It sounds like to going to meetings and feeling angry about uh, the world and tweeting it as a result. That's that's me. And now you're the nefarious yeah. force, probably millions of dollars behind you. Uh, are people do people spin conspiracy theories about how well funded you are, too? I did. I think one time someone called me 
like a political insider or something. Okay, that's, that's pretty uh, good. I like that. I, and like phrases like that once in a while get mentioned or like long time political insider, which someone who's not from St. Paul and like only started doing this stuff a few years ago. I found that really, really funny and just sort of burst out laughing. Um, although it was funny, someone did recently ask me when I said I was helping campaigns once in a while this cycle, but not quite as much. They were like, oh, and they made a money sign. And I was like, I've never been paid a single penny for my campaign work, like not a dollar. <laughs> yeah, it's not a way to get rich. Well, and it's, and it's kind of like, it's the thing, I don't need that money, you know, like I'm comfortable or whatever. And it's my way to help candidates I want to support. So it's like people do do campaign work for a living, and they should be paid well and all that stuff. But it's also a way for folks like me, or or you or whoever, like if you have the means to spend time on it, you know, it is a way to support candidates the same way some people knock doors or some people call you know, it's, I can coach candidates on how policy works, on how to talk about it, on how to build the platform. Um, and so it's kind of like my way of volunteering, because like, I'm not a huge fan of door knocking and calling as much as I really, really, really value it and think it's sort of the cornerstone of local campaigns. I don't personally want to do it. And so I volunteer the way I can. <laughs> so Matt, we're, we're uh, we risk falling in love with it, each other here at the beginning and not getting to our intended topic. We're here to talk about the politics in St. Paul. You had a historic mm -hmm. election mm -hmm. victory. First all-woman city council in the country. Six of yep. seven people of color. It seems like a big deal. Minneapolis had a pretty good election. We got mm -hmm. two new council members. Uh, council has flipped progressive. But kind of a shocking thing happening in St. Paul if you don't pay much of it, attention to it. Why is this happening? Is this something we've been building towards? Is this just a function of uh, St. Paul being like 50% people of color? Like what, what is driving the progressive change in St. Paul? I But I do think it's something we've been building toward. I mean, I think it would be really sort of silly to not admit that there's a little bit of luck that comes into play with it, um, just based on which seats opened up when. So for, for context for folks who haven't followed the St. Paul election this year, super close. Um, four incumbents left. So a majority of seats were open, which is never, I don't know, is very common. It may have never happened. I certainly, it does not happen in my 10 years of being, you know, following St. Paul politics. So four of seven seats were wide open. Um, and that's something that I started to hear about earlier on. You hear certain members mention they might step away um, Dai Tao left act in Ward 1, left actually a while ago. So we knew that would be open because there was an interim um, member filling that seat. But then, you know, you hear Chris Tolbert might be leaving. Amy Brenmoen might be leaving. Um, Jane Prince was the one I didn't know about, but she's leaving. So now there's four seats open. Um, that's sort of the lucky part. Like, you don't know when those will all happen at once. Um but I think we have been building toward I'm building toward it. You know, when I moved to St. Paul in 2013, Chris Coleman was the mayor. He had been the mayor for a long time. Um, I think he, for folks who want to put this in context, should be seen as the person who locked in St. Paul as a blue city. You know, we had had Norm Coleman run as a Democrat and then turn into a Republican. We had Randy Kelly as a mayor. Um, Chris Coleman, I think, deserves credit for essentially doing the crawling work of where we now are running because he's the one who locked us in as a blue local government city. Um, and his team, I know sometimes doesn't get the credit they deserve or they feel like they don't, um, you know, 12 years of basically solidifying local elections. And when Melvin Carter ran in 2017, I think you could either think of him as the very most modern version of the older school politics St. Paul had, because he's been in politics forever. He was on the city council in his 20s. I mean, like he's been, he was like born like the prince of St. Paul politics. He's been popular and well-known, you know, famous musician, grandfather, famous father, who was the first, you know, black officer on internal affairs and SPPD. He was like an all everything track star. I mean, Melvin is like the most well-known famous guy in the city. Like when I was, when I was helping staff him in 2017, you'd walk around, there's not a single person in the world he can't talk to. I mean, like he's just the, when people talk about someone being good in the room, there's no one I've ever seen as good in the room as Melvin. It's not even close. Like he's just built for in the room. Um, and so I think him becoming mayor in 2017, and that wasn't a sure thing. I was telling everyone that year he was going to win. And people were looking at me like I was crazy. The, the, the run of the mill 
phrasing that people used to use in St. Paul was Ward 3 elects the mayor. So Ward 3 is the highest turnout, whitest, wealthiest part of St. Paul. And when I started, unironically, people in Ward 3 used to say as a weapon, Ward 3 elects the mayor. Like they would just take out. <laughs> they it's like would just our Ward it. 13, right? Right. And it was, but it wasn't a joke. And it was like vaguely based on historical truth, but they would say it. And it was so hilarious to anyone who wasn't from here because it seemed like they were doing a bit and they weren't. And so the former Ward 3 council member, Pat Harris, was running and it was assumed he was going to win by most sort of centrist people. And uh, Melvin won and it wasn't even close. It didn't go to a second ballot. He got over 50% on a very contested five-way race. And that was a strong signal to me that the city was really ready to not only be as progressive and forward-thinking as Melvin was, they were ready to bring that into the rest of St. Paul politics. So the St. Paul legislative delegation, the county board, the city council. Um, and so Mitra ran only one year after that. And I think Mitra, you know, is really visible, gets a lot of attention. And I think for pretty good reason, because she took the same type of visionary stuff that Melvin brought, but she also brought this really strong focus on building a bench on campaigning a certain way, on bringing more people into the space. And if you work in St. Paul politics, you can't, you know, you can't go to more than one meeting a week and not meet like a young woman of color who says, I got into this because I saw what you did. You ran as yourself with a shitload of pink, a shitload of unicorns, the lightning bolts, your former Marvel podcast, you're like all of your stuff that you just were so you. And they saw that they could do that and they didn't have to just run as someone in this clean box. And so I think that is sort of what's laid the groundwork for who ran this time. Um, so our St. Paul delegation on the legislative side has gotten much more modernized, much more progressive. You have the folks like you have Claire, you have Leslie on the east side, you have Maria Issa, you have Athena, you have all of these members, you know, Kali Her, you have Aaron Murphy came back after running for governor it's just a really progressive group. Lee Finke, the first, you know, out trans person ever elected, you know, all of these really fantastic members. And so when the city council races were starting this year, you just had people, you know, Hua Zhang was the Ward 5 aide and she ran in Ward 5. She was, she was always going to win in my mind. Um, you know, Ward 1, for those who don't follow, is the most sort of jumbled, difficult ward in the city. It has a bunch of different constituencies that has... It has Rondo, so it has like the oldest black neighborhoods in the city. It has Summit Hill Cathedral Hill, which is some of the wealthiest, whitest folks in the entire city. It has North End, which has a ton of Karen folks, a ton of Hmong folks. It has parts of Frogtown, again, a bunch of Hmong folks, a bunch of different people. Um, so, you know, there were all these wards where you didn't know what the full field would be. And as it turns out, every single race that could go progressive did. And so now, you know, we just have an unbelievable opportunity as a city. I mean, this group, has just unlimited potential. I mean, it's, it's, they're all young, but they're all really, I think, qualified in their own way. So yeah, it is really unique. It's unbelievably unique, but I think it is built off of those levels of foundation. And I think, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about it more, but this crop really took a lot from Mitra's leadership, both externally as a visible example, and then just directly, like she spent a lot of time coaching and helping these people build build their campaigns in a way that they could run in a successful way. Cause as your shows always talk about like campaigns can have all the best intention in the world. And if they're not well executed, you know, you just, it doesn't go. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's, yeah, it's really exciting. And I think it has been built upon for sure. Post 2020, it felt like Minneapolis just uh, kind of boomeranged because of uh, George Floyd's murder by MPD, the pandemic, yep. but Mostly the, the crime and safety stuff, like mm -hmm. uh, a very powerful thing in politics is when white people get feel threatened and afraid. Uh, I feel like I don't know if that is different in Minneapolis, if there's a different flavor of that in Minneapolis. Cer certainly there is. I don't know if that accounts for yeah. some of the difference. Uh, you mm -hmm. have a functioning police department uh, right. that actually solves murders. That seems right. kind of important is not internationally famous for or infamous for being awful right. and racist and abusive. Right. Another, another thing that 
uh, this is a surface level, another surface level observation for Minneapolis. Are moneyed interests in St. Paul just less powerful, less well-organized? Are you just going up against weaker opponents? As Speaking as the progressive side, you just don't have the opponents that we do. I think it is a little different. Um, I think the audience is a little different. So how it plays in each city is different. Um, it does play a little quote unquote weaker here. Um, this year is actually a really good example of this. So the two examples I would give are from Melbourne's mayor's race in 2017 and the race this year. So to go back to 2017, for instance, there was a pack that got created that was essentially viewed as like a moderate pack. So the chamber of commerce spent a lot of money into it. Most of all the most well-known moderate and conservative um, business owners put money into it. Um, and like the police union literally put money into it. Um, and they hired these, uh, these consultants who are from like the Norm Coleman era. So believe it or not, in 2017, the consultant class in St. Paul still had like a bunch of carryovers from like 15 years ago that had influence when we were almost literally a Republican city. And so somehow these guys still get hired. Like it's nuts to me. Like they're not only <laughs> mediocre, but they're from another time. And like they're legitimately just really mediocre, random white dudes. And so they got hired by this pack um, to do this mailing. And so at the time in 2017, Melvin was running for mayor and his house got broken into. And so his gun, his personal gun got stolen. And I, I could be wrong. I believe it was his dad's service weapon from when he was an SPPD. So it was in a case, like a locked case, but the case got stolen. And so these people, and it made the news that it got stolen because he actually ran after the people who stole it <laughs> because he's legitimately an unbelievable runner. And so he almost got them. And so this pack that was backed by the St. Paul Chamber, the Police Federation, and almost every conservative business owner, like famous business owner, like the folks who own like W.A. Frost and like folks like that. Um, so this pack put out an ad that blamed a couple murders that had happened after the gun robbery and said, basically implying that Melvin let his gun got st get stolen and that the gun that got stolen from his home could be to blame for literal murders that took place in St. Paul. And so it blew up on them so aggressively because it was such an absurd tactic. I got personally called by the head of the St. Paul Chamber of Commerce saying, I'm sorry, we shouldn't have spent money on this. And I'm like, well, no shit, you shouldn't have. You hired unbelievably unsophisticated <laughs> consultants. And this is this is dog shit politics. I mean, it's it's trash politics. It has no place in any space like that. And so that scared people away from doing some outside money for a little. And so, for example, this year again, it came back. So um, the 49ers, uh, the Carpenters, and then a few other very conservative folks uh, built a $300,000 pack, which is tame compared to the citywide packs in Minneapolis. But in Minneapolis and St. Paul, it had been a while since that happened. And they built a $300,000 pack, essentially just to back the moderate candidate in Ward 3, which is theoretically should be the quote unquote moderate ward of the city, um, or historically could have been just by how white and wealthy it is. And they only spent a little money in a couple other races and whatever, and they got annihilated. They went over that none of the races they spent money in did anything. And part of the reason is, I think if you're going to spend outside money and not to coach people on how to build absurd packs, if you're not building an actual field program into that pack, like if you're not going to do calling and knocking, if you're not going to hire field staff to just do some organizing, get some volunteers, it's going to have an unbelievably limited impact because you would have to spend so much to impact a local race. You know, some of these races only have four or 5,000 voters. I mean, it's really, really small. You and I could talk to that many people in a year. Like we could just personally talk to that many people or you could spend 600 grand on Facebook ads and try and do the same work. It's like, you could just hire two organizers. Like you could just do the work. Right. Um, billboard, billboards. So are you a fan of billboards? <laughs> 
<laughs> I listened to your episode you did, uh, the one just before this about it was like whoever Scott Graham or someone buying a billboard. Um, but it is truly just there's been a little bit less of it. But to be honest, when it happened this year, I was really focused on letting people know like it's important that this effort gets crushed. We actually it matters for the discourse in St. Paul that we show that just blind cash grab throwing money at candidates is not how we elect our leaders. That matters. And for some reason, you know, when people talk about like civility and oh, everyone should have a voice and it's like, no, some like people don't have a right to just throw hundreds of thousands of dollars and try and set the course of our city council just because they happen to be able to cut big checks. Like we can't allow that to be what is normal. And so thankfully in St. Paul, it hasn't worked. Um, I think partly because the strategy from those folks has just been, to be honest, pretty, um, uh, bad. <laughs> Have you observed what the pack in Minneapolis is doing all of Minneapolis, which is basically the mayor's pack, maybe a little different. Right. You you have a better mayor than we do. Our mayor is affiliated a, with his people are running the pack to help buy him a right. city council, which seems extraordinary. Uh, and they right. spend millions of dollars in 21. And they think they spent at least like a million. We don't know what the final numbers are, but they spent at least a right. million in uh, 23 didn't work out. Yeah. Their candidates mostly didn't win. And right. uh, what was my question there? Is it working? Oh, you think it will work in Minneapolis in the long run? I do think the difference is the scale of the investment. So like, I do think if you really wanted to spend a million and a half bucks in St. Paul during the next mayor's race or during, during, you know, in 2027, during the city council race, if you decided you wanted to run a moderate pack and you put a million and a half bucks into it, if the question is whether you could impact the races, you 100% could impact the races. Like there, there's no question in my mind. So in it, part of it, I think is just the scale. I think the spending has been pretty huge over there. I mean, like I, that's, that's real money, you know? And I, so I think thankfully over here, people have not viewed it worth to put that much money in. And frankly, even if they did, I think we'd be able to beat it. Um, but it would be really hard for sure. It would take a lot of work. Does St. Paul no longer dedicate at least one ward to having a crank? Uh, you know, you no longer have uh, Jane. Jane Prince is gone. I thought gone. Ward 7 it's... was the dedicated ward for uh, cranks. She held that crown um, valiantly. Um, she is. Yes, she did. She absolutely. I'm going to hold a lot of my words um, about uh, Jane Prince, but <laughs> okay. she absolutely uh, wore that crown uh, proudly. Um there is, I honestly, like, it will be really interesting with this new council. I think I saw people posting after the results got finalized, after rank choice um, reallocation of those ballots, everyone was like, oh, they're going to be able to overshoot Melvin's vetoes. And people were throwing around the word veto. And I was like, I don't think you guys know, like, how Melvin works or, like, how this council works. Like, I, <laughs> like, I don't think there's going to be... I mean, I guess I don't want to be Pollyanna, but like we could go four years without a single veto. Like I, I don't, I can't imagine the scenario where there's some like aggressive veto. Like, I don't know. So right. I, yeah. I, so but I think, think the, the membership of the new St. Paul city council is going to get along. The majority is going to get along with the mayor and work together with mayor Carter. Yeah. I just think it's one of the first times we're ever going to get to see a mayor with and even a city council themselves with a solid majority. So like for people, when people say, for example, when we talked about the beginning of the show, that St. Paul is like sleepier and quieter and more polite. The truth is the reason no city council members ever talked about each other or talked about issues under the previous makeup of the council is because of the small number and the sort of erratic nature of a few of the members, you needed someone's vote almost every time. So for instance, on Ide Mill Road, the trail on Ide Mill, which is great, it goes from you know Midway all the way to West 7th, right to Kegan Case. It's once we connect it to the Greenway, it'll be the final leg of the extended Greenway. Jane Prince was the fourth vote on that project. She opposed probably 80% of the bike projects that I cared about in the last decade, but she was the fourth vote on Ide Mill Trail. And so you council members never knew who their fourth, fourth vote was going to be. So they could never say anything that would even remotely risk 
like frustrating another member. And so that's what created the so-called like culture that's really like polite or whatever. It's it's because the votes were so insecure that you had to be, you have to operate so sanded down and neutral all the time. And that's not going to be the case with this new group. This new group is going to be, there's they have plenty of diverse opinions. They have plenty of different expertise, but they are adult people who are values aligned and they have different expertise and they have different preferences, but they're going to be able to work together in a much more transparent and public way. And I think because of that, they're also going to be able to work with the mayor in a much more transparent and public way. You know, there's, there's not really ever a secret about like what Melvin's position is. Like, I mean, he's not shying away. Like he puts his vision out, like he's, he's game to own it. And Mitra's the same way. And these new council members are the same way. Like they're not going to be afraid to say why they think what they think, you know, um, you know, Sora Jost is a civil engineer. She's thoughtful and whatever, but like, she'll say her opinion, you know, like <laughs> Shaniqua Johnson on the East side in one seven, like she's the youngest of the group or, or younger than a lot of the other people, but she's qualified. Like she'll say <laughs> what she wants. Like, it's not going to be this weird shrouded thing anymore because I think the comfortability with one another is going to be there. So what, what are the big issues? What are the issue priorities? What did these candidates campaign on? What do they want to accomplish that wasn't possible in the previous term? What do they want to do? You know, the topic that did come up a decent amount was um, rent stabilization. Obviously, that's something that happens in both cities. Um, that will be interesting to track because some of the changes the council made only went into place this year. So it passed on a ballot and then got tweaked. Um, and so, for example, new construction um, got exempted, but I think only for like 15 years or something and certain people or 20 or something. I forget the details and other people want it to be 30. So like, but to be honest, it just went into place, you know, two seconds ago. And so I think a lot of council members will care about that. Like they'll want to fine tune it. They'll want to improve it. But I don't know how fast that will happen because the new policy has only been in place for a little bit. Um, but I, you know, rent stabilization will continue to get fine tuned. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, tenant protections comes back quicker than that. So tenant protections was a project I worked on for like 18 months. Um, and it basically got vetoed. Uh, not vetoed. It got, um, you know, sued and then revoked by a judge, mainly because all the large landlords were not exactly honest brokers in that process. I don't need to go too in depth about it. But, you know, I spent 18 months in rooms with them saying where they would say like, yeah, we can do all of this. This makes sense. And then they raise hell as soon as it's in the package. You know, it's just kind of like I went to every engagement session across the entire city, not just in Ward 4. I mean, like any time there was a conversation, I was there. And there was never any opposition to any of the ideas that made it in the final package. So it's just kind of, but that one is likely to come back. Um, I think the implementation of the new sales tax, so the 1% sales tax um, passed by voters um, will bring about $750 million to the streets programs and then about $250 million into parks. Um, so how that gets implemented will be a giant lift because public works has to figure out in a good way, has to figure out how to do you know, 30 substantial road reconstructions, not mill and overlay, not resurfacing, like full on reconstruction. Um, and so that's just going to be a giant push. You know, Sean Kershaw, public works director, is probably literally sitting at home with a spreadsheet right now, figuring out like how the hell are we going to rebuild all these roads? <laughs> so I think there's there's a lot of stuff. Um, but I think, you know, and a lot of stuff beyond that, My I'm thinking mostly like citywide stuff, but a lot of them have cool ward-based priorities and, and other stuff like that. Are people being accused of being socialists? Is that a common thing to get thrown around? That was kind of a theme in Minneapolis in our election. This person is a yeah. secret socialist. They've been endorsed by a group that's connected right. to socialists. They want to abolish the police. They want to defund the police. Right. Uh, right. What are white people uh, afraid of in St. Paul? Can, is there any uh, hope for white people to rise up and take their city back right. is what I'm asking. That's a good question. What the best the best of the several questions you mentioned, what are white people afraid of in St. Paul is like a really good question to answer. Um there is a decent amount of sort of pro police, anti new public safety vibes from who you would expect, like the standard issue folks. Um but actually, I mean, police department leadership, so there's a new uh police chief since I left City Hall, um Axel Henry, he's sort of widely viewed as like a really good dude to work with. I saw him when I took the civilian police, 
Department Civilian Academy to sort of learn how they talk about their programs and whatever. He was by far, like not even close. He was by far in a way the best presenter and the most authentic and the most, you know, real human being in the entire process. He's like six foot four and jacked. <laughs> he's like a monster, but he's just like the coolest guy. So I think um, the socialist thing does get thrown around, but a lot less than you would think. To put some of that in perspective, the DSA, you know, technically endorsed some candidates this cycle, but like the survey they sent to St. Paul candidates was literally just the survey they made for Minneapolis and they just send it to St. Paul people. So like, I don't, I don't take them incredibly seriously as like a St. Paul organization. I mean, they literally made St. Paul candidates give an answer about the roof depot. You know, like it's okay. just, that's not, that's the sort of endorsing organizations do that stuff all the time they'll send their state level questionnaire to local candidates and to me it's just a signal of like okay well they want to have some impact but they clearly are not investing you know like if you're just like right. sending a minneapolis survey to saint paul people it clearly means you want to do something but it does it clearly shows you're not like super super invested so the dsa stuff doesn't happen quite as much because to be honest like they don't I don't think they work quite. They probably have a lot more members over there, to be honest. I think it was really funny in Ward 3. Um, some people, some white people, if we're going to talk about what white people are scared about, the phrase dark money got used more than I ever remember in my entire life this year. I have never said it before. I've never heard <laughs> anyone mention it locally before. I So Faith in Minnesota, which I know you've talked about a couple of times on the show, they're one of the orgs that responded most you know to people like me being like we want groups more invested here like we want folks you know activating their members and they just have so many cool you know aunts grandmas uncles like random neighborhood people that are just psyched to get involved and they're really good at organizing and so um they play much bigger role than any other org you know that i would list only because they actually activate their members and it's like it's not a money thing they just activate their members they organize um but the phrase dark money got used about faith in minnesota and i was like oh are you really worried about these grandmothers and aunts who are just like showing up because they want people to have homes like it was it was wild but apparently dark money is a thing uh, that white people are afraid of in st paul yeah. so I think that was a phrase used about me starting in like 2017. And I, of course, I'm talking about Carol Becker. Uh, That's great. But it was me. It was Black Lives Matter. It was the Bicycle Coalition. We were destroying the city <laughs> with our dark money. I wish I was yeah. as well, well funded. I bet Faith in Minnesota wishes they had as much dark money as people say that they do. I, yeah, I, I'm sure they would love to like, man, if we had a secret million and a half to add to our budget, that'd be great. Like I, they'd they'd be psyched to get some dark money. I, they don't get any, but I'm sure they'd love to get some. Can we go back to rent stabilization? Uh, many people, yeah. uh, it's St. Paul is used as the, uh, what's, what's the phrase for a bad poster child, uh, a whipping boy. I don't know, but <laughs> sure. like, look, look what St. Paul did. Development has right. fallen through the floor and you want to talk mm -hmm. about it here in Minneapolis. And there's been yeah. a lot of conflating, well, what happens in Minneapolis would exactly replicate what has happened in St. Paul when St. Paul implemented yeah. a very strong, if not the strongest rent stabilization policy in the country. And you don't really have right. to do it that way. But uh, yeah. what, what do we think is the future of that? Is it going to be, are people going to respond to the complaint that this has killed uh, development in St. Paul? Is that a valid concern? And will the new council or the mayor respond to that? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming the policy will continue to get tweaked. I mean, I, that, so that I would say it will continue to get tweaked only because it's a gigantic policy and it's still pretty new. So like, I, I would not be surprised if they continue to improve it, modernize it, shape it in a different way. For example, the way it was originally written has a hard cap and then a decent amount of like exceptions. And so that creates a decent amount of like appeals process and all these things that it creates a staff, it creates a lot of staff demand. And then it creates a lot of like, are you getting the goal you want by setting a hard firm thing and then creating exceptions below? So I could see, I could see them being interested in tweaking, you know, the, the structure of it, maybe reducing the exceptions for like a modest increase from 3% or something, who knows? Um, 
I do think some of the discussion around it is fairly um, unfair and just sort of bizarre. Um, there's no one in the city of St. Paul that's more in favor of development than me. I mean, like if someone is, I would, I would love for them to prove that. I mean, I, I worked on more upzoning and development in ward four than the rest of the city combined. I mean, like ward four had more development than downtown when Mitra and I were there. I mean, we want housing, like we want housing where we can put it, but that doesn't mean you throw out issues of, you know, giving people safe homes, helping people be protected in their homes. Um, so rent stabilization, did it impact development? Like, I think it'd be crazy to say it didn't impact it at all. I'm sure it impacted it. Um, I think that's just a policy trade that needs to be tweaked. So for example, you know, if I had written it a certain way, would I have written it the way it got put on the ballot? Probably not. But I think people are sort of erasing sort of what I mentioned earlier about the tenant protection piece. People are really erasing the actual context of the moment when they talk about rent stabilization without tenant protections. So tenant protections was an 18-month process where every landlord in the city got personally engaged. I spoke to dozens, if not hundreds of them. City staff talked to even more than me. You know, a half dozen city staff spent 18 months on this. Um, we were unbelievably careful in the way we put it together. We were very delicate in using all the best practices around the city. You know, like a bunch of places in North America have tenant protections. They have just cause notice. They have, you know, don't use credit scores. Don't do all this stuff. And like I said, every landlord I talked to, when you describe the proposals, they'd be like, we either already do that or this makes sense to do. And then by the time you pass the policy or even propose it, they act like they weren't talked to, which is a lie. They act like they opposed it at the time, which is a lie. And then by the time the policy passes, 7-0, I believe, then they go to court and like claim none of it is workable after they said to all of our faces, you know, 10 to 15 times it was workable. And so in that moment, when the, you know, the large, most corporate landlords in the city, you know, erase that policy from the books, that's when advocates said, well, we have no recourse but to put something on the ballot because we already did two years of building something through community. City staff spent two years building something through community and through policy expertise, and it got erased. And so we have no choice but to put something on the ballot that will just voters will decide. And I, so I tell people all the time, when you talk about rent stabilization in St. Paul, if all you talk about is like, why was it on the ballot? Why is it so extreme? Why is it whatever? And I was like, well, an entire community of city staff, city leaders, community members got absolutely screwed trying to do things the right way. And then they tried to do it the only other way they could. And like, no, it wasn't perfect. But I just think if you weren't there and you didn't see why that happened, it's really unfair to be like, I can't believe they did 3%. You know, would I have chosen 3%? I don't know. Like, you know, maybe not. But it's like the structure of it. We had, they had just gotten steamrolled after trying to play the game, but they were told to play, you know? So it's, that's, that's the main thing I would focus on, but I'm sure it will continue to get tweaked. I mean, I think this council wants to add housing, you know, they want, we need more homes. Um, we need more deeply affordable housing in particular, but I would expect it to get tweaked. I mean, there's a lot of really thoughtful folks on this, you know, Sora, Huajan, Shaniqua, Anika, all these new members care about this stuff. And Mitra has been living in this, you know, since 2018. So like I would, I would assume it'll be a topic for sure. And the city staff on this are, are really good. I mean, they have strong housing and planning staff, so I would expect it to be a topic, but I don't think anyone should try and predict how it gets tweaked. Um, but I think it mostly will just be continue to get fine-tuned. That That's what I would think. I feel like there's a similar, like, you can only have your finger in the dam and the hole in the dam for so long before it breaks in Minneapolis. Yeah. And I'm a little worried that, like, uh, the mayor will veto or will... Uh, they had that thing right. where the Muslim council members were absent and that was oh, yeah. the day that they like stopped any consideration of a policy. Like mm -hmm. eventually something is going to pass and the longer you like obstruct and are unwilling to discuss it, the yeah. more extreme it's going to come out on the other end and it's going to have a yeah. bad result potentially. Yeah. And I think you had, you had said in a previous show, I can't remember who you were talking to. It was maybe even with Zach. I'm not sure, but the idea of, there was no space to have an honest conversation in a legislative way about rent stabilization in St. Paul because we had done that with tenant protections and it got erased anyway. So like no one was then going to try and have the same conversation again, but about rent stabilization because they'd been told, you know, by the result, like 
go away. It didn't work. It wasn't worth anything. Like, don't do it again. And so I think I, I remember you talking about that on the show that, and that's just the same. It's like if, when you're told that an honest conversation about legis- like legislating the policy can't occur, you know, where's it going to go? And so it'll yeah. just go somewhere else. So you got in touch with me after Zach was on and we had talked about uh, low density, the upzoning in St. Yeah. Paul legalized four yeah. unit, five unit. What did they legalize? Yeah, it's, it's a mix depending on the lot and, and what kind of features it's anywhere from like four or five or six based on a few factors. And we, we characterize that as look at the sleepy little thing happening in St. Paul. No one's noticing the white people are yeah. not rising up to stop it. Why? How, how is St. Paul so good at making things happen so easily? It's a mystery. Mm-hmm. Do you have any context to add to that storyline? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm the, I'm the absurd person who then DMs John and said like that conversation was great. It was almost entirely accurate. And I'm the, I'm the butt like finger in the air, <laughs> butt um, person. Uh, and I think the main, the main thing I would say is just, um, these conversations did not used to be like nice and easy, you know, like zoning and, and density conversations did not used to be nice and easy in St. Paul. I mean, one of the biggest projects that got me engaged as an advocate was the Ford site, you know, now called Highland bridge. And that eventually, um, you know, neighbors at the time literally wanted it to be single family homes. I mean, like 120 acres of like single family homes. And for those who aren't familiar, it's the former site, that Ford Motor Company had where they produced the Ford Ranger pickup truck most recently in Highland Park, and it's on the Mississippi River. And so it was the most desirable redevelopment site, I think, in the entire country at the time. Um, And thankfully, you know, Merrick Clapp Smith, so many other folks who worked on that project at the time for like literally a decade of their careers uh, got that through, but it, it was brutal. I mean, like getting that through was years long process for advocates to get even moderate density, even five stories, seven stories, whatever. I mean, it's, and now a lot of the buildings are coming in even smaller, you know, a lot of it is just like three story townhomes and whatever, but it's a great site. It's, it's, it could have been even, could have been even bigger, but then, you know, during my time, Marshall Avenue uh, got rezoned and that was a brutal, brutal, brutal situation. Mitra and I had just started, um, and neighbors essentially had been given free reign to try and down zone an entire stretch of Marshall Avenue, which now is about to have the V-line bus rapid transit on it. Um, I can tell you, uh, having been personally screamed at for like six months uh, doing that, that that was not quiet or polite. <laughs> so where did those so people even... go? Where did those people go? I remember the the Ford site thing. That got pretty intense. Those people exist. And I imagine their opinions haven't been changed like where why didn't they show up and make a fuss i think i think part of their energy was probably put into some of the campaign stuff so i think honestly it is the part that you all talked about that i do relate to is like i'm i actually thought there would be more opposition like i thought there'd be more even like fake prepped up opposition i'm really psyched that there wasn't um because the truth is this type of missing middle redevelopment is the type of stuff that should be allowed everywhere because it's only going to happen when it happens. It's not going to be, you know, if your block has 20 houses on it, you know, two of them are going to change, you know, in the next 20 years, like it's not going to be crazy. We just have to allow it so that it can happen. Um, But I think some of it was people being, you know, focused on the political stuff. Some of it was people probably focusing on the save summit Avenue, um, which is equally silly, you know, stuff. Um, and I, yeah, so I think it was just spread around. Honestly, I'm a little surprised it didn't get more attention. I think partly though, none of the council members really trumpeted opposition either. So like, even though it only passed four to three, none of the people who voted against it were like rah rahing opposition. And that's pretty rare. Um, like, you know, it's very frequent that if 20 people show up to a public hearing in opposition to a well-supported project, you know, maybe Jane was opposing it. So she gets people to show up or, you know, or whatever, like a council member seeds that. And I don't think anyone was really seeding it. Like, I think that's maybe the biggest answer is I don't think anyone was deciding to like, choose that as the fight. Honestly. Is there anything, any topic we have not covered? Am I missing something? Should we be talking about something? I mean, I, I do think, so the 1% sales tax I wanted, I wanted to bring up just because, I thought a lot of the public messaging about it was essentially about that money fixing potholes. 
I not only think that's like reductive and maybe it was just done for the sake of like TV news, lowest common denominator stuff. But I actually think the 1% sales tax money could be the most transformational spending. Like it could put St. Paul on the map globally. And I did a couple P I did a piece on streets MN in the spring about this. And I did sort of a monster thread about this a few times since then. It's not possible to transform a road unless you're reconstructing it. You know, your listeners and viewers know this better than anybody. When you do a mill and overlay, all you're doing is scraping the cheese off the top of the lasagna. Like all you're doing is changing the way like that final layer of the meal looks. You can change paint. You can add like painted buffer stuff. But for anyone who's ever biked or walked a street, if you're in a painted lane, you still feel like you could die any second. You the, the entire time you're pulling your kid on the trailer, you're biking by yourself, you're biking without a helmet, you know, you're showing someone a new route, you could just die like at any second. But when you reconstruct a road, you're baking that lasagna from scratch. You're, you're taking out a pan. Every element of the ingredients are layered on top of each other. Utilities, fiber, the gravel, the actual foundation, all of it. And you can move where the curb is so that like normal people will now choose to bike and walk to work, to school, to grocery store, to the show they're going to at the Palace Theater, whatever. And like normal people are not going to bike along Summit Avenue in a painted lane. Because they're going to get hit by a door or they're going to get hit by a truck or they're going to feel scared every second of the entire time. But guess what? Normal people will bike and walk on an off street path. They will because they don't feel like their kid is going to die just because they made that choice. And reconstructing 30 or 20 to 30 of the most major corridors in the city. Sure, they could be rebuilt the way they are now, but I'm not, you know, negative enough to think that's what we're going to do. We need to be ambitious. And this means we have the opportunity to create maybe the best off-street bike network in the U.S. Like we, it, we truly could have the best network in Minnesota, in the Midwest, nationally, if we want to, like with this funding, it's not hyperbole. It's not crazy. Like if every route we rebuild, you know, we can turn Grand Avenue into a pedestrian plus BRT route. We can turn Summit into an off-street trail route. We can turn the 623 bus line into a dedicated busway on Cretan and Grand. We can turn Hamlin Avenue into the best bikeway that connects north-south in St. Paul. And so I think that 1% sales tax money, and to say nothing of the parks money, you know, regional athletic facilities, all these cool things. But I just think people are sleeping on how transformational this money could be if it's done boldly. And I think it will be done boldly because we have the raddest city council in the fucking world <laughs> who just got elected. We have an unbelievably ambitious mayor who is willing to take risks and willing to take big swings. And we have a public works director that really knows how to be ambitious. And so I just think anyone who saw that vote as anything but the biggest bike ped opportunity like in the state's history was missing the story. Like it, it could be unbelievably transformational. So one of the reasons I'm optimistic in Minneapolis when it comes to streets and, and transportation mm -hmm. is we have the transportation action plan. And so it's mm -hmm. not about the personalities. I don't have to hope that we elect a good city council or we have a good mayor right. or a good public works director. Like I'd love to have those things. Those things make a big right. difference. But like we have cemented it in policy so that it's no longer an aldermanic privilege thing where one yeah. council member is like, no, I, I prefer parking over bike lanes and it's not happening in my ward. But since we have this right. policy that guides how streets are constructed citywide, the public works department has to pay attention to it. Council members yeah. are more inclined to abide by it because they all feel like, well, it applies everywhere. It's not like one of us is getting shortchanged here and it's going against us. So. Right. I don't, St. Paul doesn't have anything like that, right? We, so the climate action plan would speak to things like that, like reducing VMT. You know, we have a bike plan that's about to get updated. That's the reason why I thought the sales tax vote was so important is because at the same time, we have a draft that, you know, Ruben Collins and his team in public works put out an updated draft earlier this year that shows where a bunch of these new off street paths and protected paths could go. 
And so the reason I told people, I'm like, listen, we just got metro area sales tax for BRT. We we could get local sales tax for bike ped and we could be, and the new plan tells us where to put those paths and we could have the money to actually do the stuff. And that never happens. You never have the policy and the money at the same time, ever, ever, ever. And so I think in St. Paul, we do have that plan and it does help, but mostly I think it's a tool. Mostly it's a tool at the table because most of the routes still have to come for a council vote um, and they still require approval. So every project still has to have political support. But to your point, the nice thing in St. Paul, which is similar, you know, seems like what you're saying in Minneapolis is the ward preference thing has slowly died away. When I started following the city council in 2013, back then, if the council member of that ward, you know, said something was dead, it was dead. Like they just had a veto card. Now they might have like half of one, maybe like a third of one. A good example is the Dixie's um, site on Grand Avenue. Um, like several years ago, someone was proposing that they would rebuild the site, but every current tenant would rep- would be the new ground floor tenants. They would just add housing on top. So it's like a picture perfect project. All you're doing is adding neighbors. You're not displacing any, and you're in a wealthy neighborhood. So like there's no displacement fear. There's no gentrification fear. You're literally replacing current retail with existing retail. You're just adding customers up top. You're adding neighbors up top. It's like a dream project. Like these come around like once every 25 proposals is like this. It's so simple. But the incumbent council member for that area, you know, Rebecca Naker um, opposed it, but it still went through because Mitra organized a bunch of support for it. You know, Amy Tolbert and, and our Amy Brenmoen and Chris Tolbert were in favor of it. So it went through, even though the sort of the location-based council member opposed it. And that's one of several instances where that's happened recently, where thankfully, you know, we don't elect like seven people with veto power, which is really important because, you know, as you said, stuff has to actually happen. And so that helps stuff happen. My advice for St. Paul is to adopt a stronger policies that lock in future policymakers. So they have to continue because <laughs> you're, you're eventually you're going to lose your, uh, your uh, majority. And maybe we elect seven angry uh, people who don't want these things to happen in the future. So lock it in. Lock sure. It in. Sure. Who, who is the evil? Who's the bike advocate on the, city council is it mitra is it someone else like uh i'm often i'm often concerned that minneapolis doesn't have someone we have elliot Payne, but like right i, I miss lisa bender who was the evil bike lady in minneapolis like who yeah. is that person in well, st paul well by the way i loved your bike along videos and shows i that's like entirely i'm the target audience for that content 100 <laughs> percent um, you were all the I, views I, on youtube <laughs> Well, because I, I do stuff like that. I cover women's soccer and I literally go for soccer players scooter to their games from Dinky Town up to Elizabeth Law Robbie Stadium. Multiple times I've done live ride alongs with them because it's my same exact vibe. I just want to be, that's the content I, I want. Um, in St. Paul, historically, that was Russ Stark. So the, the predecessor to Mitra, Russ Stark was for sure viewed as like, Mr. Bike Lobby, you know, absurd bike guy. Um, he, you know, for those who have never interacted with Russ, he's like, he's un, he's fantastically progressive. He's the sweetest human being on earth. He's like your height, John. You know, he's like six four, whatever. He's like this giant, sweet, super smart, progressive guy who's the least threatening dude in the entire world. Like he's never said a mean word once. And Mm -hmm. somehow he became people's villain. And it was like the greatest comedy for like four straight (laughs) years for me. Um, Mitra would probably be that person now, the person who's sort of quote unquote too bike ped friendly um, for people who hate bike ped. Um, I think a lot of these new members are going to be pretty in favor. I mean, like I, Sora, I know does a lot of like neighborhood runs and she would post like, hey, I sort of like pedestrian content of like, hey, I saw this thing while I was running, blah, blah, blah. So like she's super in favor, but Mitra for sure is the biggest target. I mean, like she'll, you know, she'll take selfies on like the green line. Um, Cause the green line goes pretty close to city hall. It's not as close as like Minneapolis city hall, but like you can take the green line to it, but she would for sure be the target of the, of the anti folks. Yeah, for sure. We're at the end, Matt. Uh, so 
you've been way too optimistic about St. Paul in this episode. Mm. So my final question mm -hmm. is, tell me what your big fear is. What are you pessimistic about when it comes to the future of St. Paul, government, politics, whatever? What could go wrong? I, I don't think this is going to go wrong and like this isn't a fear. But the thing that will take a little bit of time is just onboarding all these new folks. So like being a council member is a really weird job. It's a really hard job. Um, being a legislative aide is a really hard job and a really weird job. Um, and working together in that space, you know, City Hall is a bizarre as a job, like just as a thing you spend your time doing, being an elected official is really bizarre and it's really hard. And it's like, there's no comparison to it. Just like compared to like what I do all day versus if I were an elected official, being an elected official is really weird. <laughs> and so like learning how it works, learning how to do it well, learning literally just like where this meeting is, where this building is, like what day of the week do we do this? What day of the week do we do that? So I do think there's going to be some on-ramp. I mean, there's going to be some transition this year and you know, St. Paul is like most cities where they pass their budget at the end of the year. The but most of the budget work in earnest, you know, happens in the second half of the year. So I would expect the first six months, you know, first six, seven months before the budget process starts in earnest to be a decent amount of onboarding and a decent amount of folks sort of, they'll do their early priorities. They'll do all those things. But, you know, I think if there's any hesitation about like how unbelievably cool the city council is going to be, it's just, you're not going to be able to do in year in on day one, what you're going to be able to do at the start of year two, you know, like the amount of learning and growing is real. And so at the very least, you know, no one should expect them to like reopen rent stabilization on like day 10 or something. Cause that would just be frankly a little silly, but like they're, you know, I think they're going to be pretty ordered and reasonable about how they take things on because I think they want to do things the right way. And so the only, the only like hesitation I would have is just, Folks should be, there's no level of excitement that would be too high for this group. And with May, with, you know, with Mitra as, you know, one of the leaders in City Hall, with Melvin as one of the leaders in City Hall, like there's no hope that would be too high for this group, honestly, like as a progressive person. Um, but it's just like it might take, you know, three, six, nine months for people to get comfortable and that's fine. <laughs> Do you have any St. Paul recommendations? This is actually the last question. I ask people mm. to give recommendations. Tell me, yeah. what do you recommend? What makes you happy? What do you like to do or go places to yeah. go or media to consume? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm going to be shamelessly midway in Ward 4 um, aligned here, which is good for your Minneapolis listeners and viewers because it's on the border. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit you with tons of local good stuff in Ward 4 and Midway. Midway or Ward 4 has like half of the city's breweries as one of seven wards, like half of them are in one ward. So Dual Citizen, Urban Growler, Bang Brewing, uh, Burning Brothers. I'm going to forget one and they'll be they'll be mad at me. Lake Monster. Um, we used to have studio distilling, which is, has good whiskey and gin. Um, but there's just a ton of really cool local restaurants and businesses. Pho Pastor is on Snelling and they're family owned and they're unbelievable. Uh, Master Noodles at the Hamlin station of the light rail. So much good stuff there. Urban Growler has good food. Oh, Black, Gar Black Garnet Books is the only black owned bookstore in the state. It's at the Hamlin station light rail stop. Uh, Dion is there. They're just the absolute best. Yeah, I mean, there's tons of good stuff in St. Paul. There's, I, I think the, especially during the shutdown, people realized how much they valued all these neighborhood spots. And so like, partially out of laziness and partially because I just really, really didn't want any of these places to fail. Like all I was doing was getting takeout from Faux Pastor, Master Noodle and Urban Growler, like on rotation. Because <laughs> I was just like, we can't lose these places. Oh, Groundswell's in my neighborhood. They're, you know, they're the absolute best. Everyone knows about Groundswell. Um, that's, but yeah, I mean, especially Midway's a great spot. It's right between the downtowns and that's why a place like Groundswell is popular or Master Noodle or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's just overflowing with good stuff. I'm sorry for asking another question. Does St. Paul have a version of Uptown is dead? What What is the place in St. Paul that people are always oh. saying is dead uh, because it's not like it was when they were growing up what is constantly dying in there's, st paul there's there's nothing to that degree because uptown is dead is like so even i and i know nothing about minneapolis like i love that so much the or or even the idea of like it's so busy no one goes there anymore like that mm -hmm. uh that that happens in st paul for sure um 
I mean, Grand Avenue has like little bits of actual struggle just because um, they, for a long time, that neighborhood and the council and the city opposed density. And so it is a lot of ground floor retail, but there actually isn't a lot of like dense customer base in the neighborhood. So that actually is a place where it would be really, really cool to get a little bit more density just to add more things like that. There's, there's nothing to the scale of um, uptown is dead for sure. But down, downtown has a little bit of that vibe too, where, you know, people say it's like a, it's like a crime thing, which is, you know, partially rooted in some reality, but mostly far, far, far um, overblown in my mind as someone who, walks everywhere bikes everywhere takes transit everywhere like anywhere i go i'm amongst actual human beings and not in a metal box and so i've just the places where people say like this is scary this is run down like it's always a little to a lot overblown but you know there's truth to the fact that like we need more people places and like more pedestrians is good and more people is good um there's very few problems i think a city can have that aren't solved by just like adding foot traffic and adding people <laughs> i think that's like it solves an unbelievable yeah. amount of problems <laughs> my guest has been longtime political insider matt Provratsky. you've been a really good guest and you you know how you know you've been a good guest i could have ended this episode like 15 minutes ago but we kept going i think people will really enjoy it thank you for being here that, john this was the absolute best um if anyone is at all interested in getting involved in saint paul I am absurdly available to an unhealthy degree. Um, D, D, DM me. Um, I'm willing to help anyone get engaged and involved in St. Paul. Uh, I will spend an unhealthy amount of effort and energy on it. So if, if anyone's curious or has any random stuff, uh, reach out because more people being involved is better. So happy to be on the show. Loved it. Uh, thank you for plugging, uh, getting in contact with Matt Provatsky at the end. That's what, that's what you had to promote. Please come talk to me. I have a lot of time to spend with you, which is true because you spent 66 minutes with me. Okay. This has been the Wedge Live podcast. I'm your host, John Edwards. Thank you for listening. This is a real, real thing. Real, 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 real thing. None of you have the balls to stop. We're in the wedge neighborhood right now, 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 right now.